This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on infantile botulism. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Infantile botulism is caused by intestinal colonization with Clostridium botulinum. This causes intestinal immobility and progressive descending paralysis. It is not common, but very serious when it does occur. To tell us about this disease, we have on the line Professor Linda Neild. Linda is Professor of Medical Education and Pediatrics at West Virginia University School of Medicine. And Linda is also author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this disease. So Linda, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is infantile botulism? Well, infantile botulism is a potentially life-threatening illness that's caused by, as you had said, the toxin that's produced by a bacteria called Clostridium botulinum, and that is an anaerobic gram-positive spore-forming rod. And the reason that it can cause death is because it causes an acute paralysis that descends and can lead to respiratory failure. Okay, and, and how would you recognize an, an affected infant? What signs might they have? Yes, so I've considered it many times in my career in the differential diagnosis of babies in the first uh, few months of life that present with constipation, although that's a very common finding that we'll have in babies, but it still is always on our list. But when you should more seriously consider botulism is when a infant is not only constipated, which may or may not be present, but maybe experiencing poor feeding, difficulty sucking and swallowing, having ptosis of the eyelids, and having poor neck control or being more floppy than usual. And it typically progresses quickly, maybe over several hours. And that is when it should be seriously considered in the diagnosis of a baby that presents that way. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. And if you were seriously considering it, what tests might you request to confirm or or exclude the diagnosis? It's considered a two-part process. One, you'd like to detect that the toxin, the neurotoxin that causes the symptoms is actually present. And that can be detected in the most common way is through a a stool sample in the feces. And the test that's performed is called a mouse neutralization assay. The bacteria of Clostridia botulinum can also be detected via a culture in the feces also, although it may not be easy to get a stool sample if a child is constipated. Okay, and what's the mainstay of treatment, um, can I ask? The most common part of the treatment is actually to support the infant, and typically the child will have that support in a pediatric intensive care unit because there isn't any great treatment for reversing the paralysis, although the the child has to be supported through the paralysis that occurs due to the toxin. So that would may entail the use of ventilatory support and possibly even feedings or tube feedings to sustain the baby until the motor neurons that were damaged via the toxin are regenerated over weeks, sometimes months. So supportive care is the prime 
mainstay of treatment. Okay, and are isolation measures necessary? Can the uh, infected baby infect other people? The baby themselves can't actually infect another, but the toxin can remain in the stool for several weeks, possibly even months. So there would be enteric precautions for those who are caring for the baby and to make sure that there's proper disposal of the diapers that the baby is wearing because it is potentially possible for someone to come in contact with the toxin in the baby's stool. So isolation measures should be taken immediately once the diagnosis is suspected. Okay, thank you. And back to the history. Are there any risk factors that you might ask about if you did suspect this disease? The classic risk factor that parents or caregivers of infants are asked is if the child has consumed honey because several cases of infantile botulism in the past were associated with the consumption of honey, although most cases now are not associated with that. And the reason being is that spores could be in honey and then those spores would germinate in the infant's intestines and then produce the toxin. So that is one part of the history that should be elicited. Also, though, the more common ways it's thought that infantile botulism occurs is via ingestion of possibly soil some way or dust that is contaminated with botulism or the toxin. And that is the theory of how an infant may get botulism, even in those who are purely being breastfed, which it also can occur in. Okay, thank you. That's that's really clear. And having made the diagnosis, is the disease reportable? Do you need to report the disease to the relevant health authorities in your country? Yes. In the United States, it is recommended to report the diagnosis or suspected diagnosis as soon as possible. It would be in the jurisdiction in which the person lives, like we would call it the local health department. And it is quite easy online now to find the appropriate number to call. And also, if one is going to consult with experts in the country or really in the world, in California, there is an infant botulism treatment and prevention program that I would recommend physicians consult even around the world because they do work internationally to help to guide with what should be done and pretty much discussing what we're discussing here today, how to diagnose it, what tests should be run, whether further treatment should be should be given to the child. Further delving into diagnosis, I wonder what are the common differentials um, for this disease and how can you tell the differentials from the disease itself? Yes, sure. So a study was done by a group, Quarry and Colleagues, that's K-H-O-U-R-I and Colleagues, and looking at infants that were diagnosed with botulism and the most common mimics of botulism. And one of the more common mimics was spinal muscular muscular atrophy, which typically occurred earlier than botulism would, and it did have sparing of the extraocular muscles. So in botulism, it's very common to have bulbar palsies, which is associated with defects in the cranial nerves 7 through 12, and that would not be occurring in spinal muscular atrophy. Guillain-Barre syndrome is another entity that may be confused with botulism, although that is quite uncommon in 
this age group that we're talking about today and in cases where it was diagnosed in that one study I referred to, the infants were older than those with botulism or spinal muscular atrophy. Typically that's associated with an antecedent viral illness. Other metabolic disorders that are also rare were found in that group and also sequelae from neuroblastoma is on the list. Other entities like myasthenia gravis typically doesn't have gastrointestinal symptoms like botulism can have and it also is quite uncommon in this age group. Other entities, for instance, like tick paralysis wouldn't present exactly the same. I also should mention Guillain-Barre syndrome. Actually, the classic is ascending paralysis and the spinal muscular atrophy, I should have added, would be a more progressive weakness rather than the rather acute onset that happens with botulism. Okay, thank you. That's that's very clear and helpful. I wonder, are there any other common pitfalls in the diagnosis and management of uh, infantile botulism? I would say that the most common pitfall is that the primary care physician or the first-line physician just doesn't consider it in the diagnosis because it is so uncommon. And so I think keeping it in mind on a differential diagnosis list and making sure that one is fully convinced that it isn't botulism is going to be most helpful. So the common pitfall would be not including it in the diagnosis and missing it and not providing aggressive care as early as possible. Okay, great. Thank you. And I wonder what have we missed? Are there any other questions you typically get asked about infantile botulism by healthcare professionals? I would say ones that I have been asked in the past have been in relation really to what you've already asked is, is it contagious? Can a mother breastfeed? Can botulism be spread that way? And the toxin is actually too large to pass through breast milk. So a mother could not give a baby botulism. And will my child die? Well, certainly if it is not recognized and aggressive supportive care isn't provided to the infant, the prognosis can be quite dismal, leading to death in you know up to half of cases. However, with the mainstay of treatment in the United States with the aggressive supportive care, most infants do quite well and can have an excellent prognosis with uh, less than 5% or so would die from it. It's more providing the supportive care and treating any sequelae that may come from just the treatment that's to provided to provide that supportive care. Okay, great. Thank you. And last question. I wonder if you had one single piece of summary advice to give to a healthcare professional. I wonder what would it be? I would say definitely consider it in the diagnosis. And one other part of this that we didn't touch upon was in the United States, since 2003, a product has been available via that was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. It was actually available before 2003, but that's when it became approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States is a treatment or an antitoxin, which would be botulism, immunoglobulin or baby BIG that can be given intravenously that can shorten hospitalization and ventilation and tube feedings if it's given in within the first week of 
suspected or confirmed botulism. And it is an antibody that was human derived, which could not reverse paralysis, but can neutralize further toxin that's there. It's very expensive in the tens of thousands of dollars. It's available via the the infant botulism treatment and prevention program that I mentioned earlier. So the, the piece of advice, again, is consider it in the diagnosis and contact experts on this topic, neurologists, pediatric infectious disease specialists, and the experts on infant botulism in California that physicians around the world can contact for support over the phone and whether or not the BIG IV could be used in the particular case. Okay, thank you very much, Linda. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at the content on this and other relevant infectious diseases. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.